Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Patient Podcast. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. When my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I decided to use my skills as a journalist in a different way. Frustrated by the lack of information on science and the inability to get different expert opinions, I decided to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal to create a better platform for people impacted by dementia. We are a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. We invite the experts and ask your questions. Here's today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Uh, Nicholas Chan, reporter at Being Patient, and welcome to our live talk uh, with Scott Rose um, to speak about his experience um, caring for his late wife, uh, Maureen Patrick Rose, after her um, diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia uh, in 2016. Um, and three and a half years after her diagnosis, uh, she passed away in 2019 at the age of 69. Uh, so, Scott, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So, Scott, you know, you, you wrote the book, We Danced, Our Story of Love and Dementia. And I just want to start off our interview by asking, you know, uh, what inspired you to to write the book in the first place? Sure. I felt like in many ways, frontal temporal degeneration or FTD really silenced Maureen. She had the primary progressive aphasia, semantic variant, and that really affects your language and your ability to communicate. And I wanted her voice out there. Uh, yes, I wanted to raise awareness of, for FTD so we can get to a cure and nobody else has to lose a loved one. But, but I also wanted to share Maureen, the person, not just the cause. Uh, she was a quiet and shy person, but also kind and gracious. She had a huge heart. Uh, I wanted her story out there so she was not forgotten. I placed a note in our home about a month after she passed, and it said, Maureen deserves a legacy that lives well beyond me. And that served as a daily inspiration, as a daily motivation, whether her legacy is her joyful spirit and remembering that, or raising awareness to combat a disease like FTD. I feel like releasing We Danced, Our Story of Love and Dementia, that I'm making good on that commitment. Right. So by writing the book, it's very much your way of extending Maureen's legacy, right? Um, uh, and, um, and, you know, you, you mentioned that um, FTD, um, in many ways, it reveals a person's strength instead of their weakness. You wrote that in your book. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, how did it reveal Maureen's strength um, throughout the course of her disease? Well, Maureen's, uh, well, any, any dementia can really take away a lot of your personality. It can, uh, it can be such an immense struggle, such an immense weight on you and both in terms of behavior, in terms of language, your ability to communicate. But Maureen, in her quiet way, without even realizing it, I think in many ways rose above that. She, I could see her still struggling through things. When she would snap at me 
and have a behavioral crash, as I would call them, or a mood shift, there was a moment later on in the mood shift where she'd look at me and she'd say, she'd ask, why did I do that? And she knew what her true nature was rather than what this behavioral crash was like. And, and she was able to hold on to those things, not, not every moment of every day, but she was able to get back to those. And, and even in the very late stages of her dementia, I was able to see that kind, that gracious, that, that loving person, even if she was completely drained on a certain day, she'd, I'd rest my hand on her hand and she'd just give it a little squeeze. And that alone could tell me, even if she couldn't communicate that day, that would tell me that's still Maureen. That's who she is. That's the gracious, caring person that she is. Right. And I think you're touching on a point that you raise in your book and also many other caregivers have raised um, to me as well in my, in my interviews with them is that, you know, dementia doesn't fundamentally change a person, right? Um, and, you know, you also, you know, you talk about Maureen's behavioral symptoms um, during her illness. And, um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you learn to respond and not to react to her, um, to her crashes, right? And, um, and to rem remind yourself that it's, um, it's the disease, but it's not uh, her nature, right? To, to act out like that, right? Like that was, that was an important point to you, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, it was. Uh, you, you recognize the disease, but you don't divorce the disease from the person either. It, Maureen stayed Maureen. She stayed my wife, the love of my life, till she drew her last breath. That's not to say that there weren't challenges, there weren't struggles, there weren't tears, there weren't a lot of uh, things that, that impacted us. But, but you have to look at them and say, this is the person, this is the same person that, that I fell in love with years ago. And, and there are behavioral crashes. There were moments where she said, um, I, I hate you. I could just kill you. I could, um, why are you here? You're a liar. You're cruel. And those are in those behavioral crashes that are, that are certainly hard to hear from your loved one. But at the same point as she's saying these things to me, I'm looking in her eyes and seeing that she's struggling like she's watching herself in a movie that she can't stop. And, and you have to recognize that that person is still there. Mm, right. And many of the, like the behavioral symptoms or other symptoms, it's beyond their control, right? It's, it's, a, it's a disease. It's a manifestation of the disease. Right. And, you know, the book is very much uh, a love story. Um, you tell the love story between the two of you. So, you know, can you tell us about, you know, how you and Maureen take us back into history and tell us how you and Maureen uh, first, first met each other? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm a project manager for school districts. And what that means is I help them hire architects and contractors and I oversee the work. And whether that's a, a renovation or a new school, I, I help them through that process. And that work took me down to Eugene School District in Eugene, Oregon. And they had just passed a bond, had a new growing construction department. And I was coming in at the ground floor. And about a month later, Maureen, who was already working for the district, transferred to this department. And that's when we first met. And that was in the spring of 93. And 
I could see this was a person that was very smart, very driven, but also extremely nervous. She was green about construction. And so we developed this very strong relationship where I helped her and she helped me. Uh, she saw what needed to be done and, and uh, she rolled up her sleeves and she was tremendous at it. And having to break down this barriers of, of nervousness and trust and so forth and, and really learn to uh, trust me and to rely on me. And, and that strong work relationship turned into a good friendship too. We started to realize that we had uh, the same interests in art and music and travel. And then about two years into that, uh, work relationship, I had another opportunity to go to Portland, Oregon, about two hours north. And I took that opportunity. And for about a year, while I was up in Portland, and she was still down in Eugene, we spoke a couple times, but not much. We didn't really reconnect until a year later. And when we reconnected, we found ourselves both single, both available, and and we just decided to start dating and it wasn't something even a conscious decision it just sort of immediately flowed into that it was like dating your best friend and and we uh, dated for about four years before getting married and both of us it was we made each other very very happy it was the happiest either of us had ever been in our lives right and was she working as, um, as a bus driver at the time when when you met her and through yeah no, actually, she had been driving in the transportation department at the school district. She was a driver, and then she worked in dispatch. And so when I met her, um, due to various shifts within the organization, she got transferred. So she transferred from transportation to uh, my construction department. And uh, like I say, you know, she had a lot of knowledge of transportation. She knew the district well and all the schools, but she didn't know a thing about construction. And so she was obviously very nervous to be thrust into this new department. Mm, right. And then fast forward, then uh, she retired. Um, she ultimately retired then as, as a bus driver, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she, yeah, she worked for uh, about three years in that office environment. And when she, we started dating, I guess she worked there another, a fourth year. And then when we, she came up to Portland, she decided to drive for the city bus system up in Portland. She just kind of missed being out among people and, and she loved people watching. She loved that energy. And so uh, she went from driving school bus in Eugene to in Portland, she drove city bus and we would uh, oftentimes run her routes together. So she would get a new route. She didn't know Portland well. And so she and I would drive them together until she learned them really well. And then I would ride with her on a couple uh, evenings when she would start her afternoons when she'd start her bus route, uh, just so she could have that confidence and build that confidence in, in learning her way around Portland. Mm, right, got it. And um, and uh, after she retired, right, uh, I, um, you know, one of the hobbies, one of the things that she took up was uh, piano lessons, right? I remember you, you mentioned that in your book, and um, there was piano lessons, and but sev several years uh, after her retirement, that was when, um, like, the early symptoms of, uh, of FTD started to, to show itself, right? Um, and yeah, can you tell us a little bit about some of these, like, early symptoms of the disease that that you started noticing and what was that like for for you and for for Maureen then mm -hmm. yeah and she retired when she turned 63 and which was in 2013 
And yes, I immediately got her piano lessons. I, she, that was something she'd wanted to do. She never felt she had the time. Now that she was retired, I, I did get those. And she maintained those piano lessons uh, for about four years, for three years, and then a year into the FTD, she was still doing the piano lessons. But, but the earliest symptoms, I'll say, of the FTD was really a breakdown of her executive functions and being able to follow steps. Simple things around the house, like she struggled with making coffee or laundry or dishes or just some of those tasks around the house. We would do dishes together after dinner. And I would rinse off a dish and I'd hand it to her and she'd put it in the dishwasher. But after the third or fourth dish, she instead dried it and put it in the cupboard. And I would remind her, I'd say, well, honey, that's dirty. That needs to go in the dishwasher. Oh, right, she'd say. And she would start to make coffee and kind of get stuck on the second step and not understand how, you know, how much further to go. And concurrently with that, she was also losing her words. I would come home from work because she was retired and I was still working and, and I would ask her how her day was. And instead of telling me a long narrative or a story about her day as she typically did, she would just say fine or okay and really using fewer and fewer words. She was just losing her ability to tell a narrative. But I think the clincher for me when I knew there was definitely something specific, significantly wrong was we were putting a pool together, an above ground pool uh, together. She had asked for one. And I was on the inside and I forgot to place a chair on the outside to step down onto. And I asked Maureen to bring the chair over and she saw work gloves on the chair and she just froze. And you could just see her struggling, trying to reason through what she was looking at. And after a couple minutes, I said, well, honey, please pick up the gloves. And she did. And then I said, please set them on the ground. And she did. And then I said, okay, now, now bring me the chair. And she did. And she could do that then, but I could see it's definitely something wrong. The gloves had thrown her completely. So I stepped out of the pool and I gave her a hug and, and we, we sat down together and talked. And I said, I said, honey, does it, does it seem like things are a little off for you? Because it does for me. And she replied, yeah, I guess. And I explained, well, honey, it seems like it makes you feel sad and I don't want you to be sad. Maybe we can go see a doctor. And she kept looking down. She says, I, I don't know if there's anything they can do. And I said, well, you know, let's get it checked out. Maybe it's just something like a vitamin deficiency. I, I was completely naive about dementia. It was not anything in her family. So it never even occurred to me to think dementia. I just knew that something was off in her ability to, to, to reason. Mm, right. And, um, and you took her, you first took her to the, um, the primary care doctor, right? And I remember from the book that, you know, you wrote about how the nurse asked her for her birthday, um, and, and she couldn't say her birthday, right? Like you had to uh, sort of like mouth the, um, like prompt her to say what her birthday was, right? Yeah. And, 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 an example. and yeah. yeah, and it's a nuance there because if somebody asks you your birthday and you can't say your birthday, there's an, this immediate assumption that you've forgotten it. Oh, you've forgotten it. It must be Alzheimer's or it must be a memory issue. But she didn't forget it. I could see her trying to, ferret it out, trying to say it, trying to say it, take, take a thought and turn it into words. And she couldn't do that. It was 
different than a memory issue. And so, yes, I'd walk her through to, to April, to 27, to the year, and eventually she would get there. But that was, that was in our first doctor's appointment. And what was such a stark thing for me, because I guess I'd never asked her something technical, like, what is your birthday? You don't typically have those kind of conversations with somebody that you've known for 20 some years. You don't have to ask those questions. You know those answers. So, mm, Right. And um, another one is also, uh, this is a different um, appointment, right? Um, the, the clock drawing, right? That was like, she also had problems doing the clock drawing, right? Yes, there was about a three-month period between our first appointment and the diagnosis. And during that time frame, they said, look, this is something far more serious. They did the MRI. They saw where the, where the brain was in atrophy a bit. And we went through a series of tests to show not just what it was, but also what it wasn't. There were lots of strength tests where she had to hold something. They were checking for for. Uh, tremors and making sure that strength was equal in both hands and and but yeah with the drawing the clock some of the tests were actually in our home versus in the clinic and they were trying to do that to see if it was a different setting that might make her more comfortable but sadly it wasn't in our living room she was given a piece of paper and she was asked to draw a circle and she drew kind of an oblong one it was a bit of a struggle, but she, she did it without any assistance. And then she asked the, the, uh, the person that was there, asked Maureen to put numbers on it, like the face of a clock. And Maureen really struggled with that to understand that it took a few times to give that direction. And again, the executive functioning thing from direction to action took her a while to understand that. And then she'd put like a one in and then a two, and then the three was at about the five o'clock position. And then she did a four at about the seven or eight o'clock position. And then she just kind of put the five at the top and called it done. And, and it was you know, obvious that that really, she, she struggled with that. And the person that was administering the test, she said, can you draw hands on the clock to show two o'clock? And Maureen had picked up the pencil, looked at it, and just put the pencil down and looked at me. She just she could not even try to do that. And and yeah, and that was that was a sad day. That was I think that's when Maureen knew it was getting worse. That there was, there was this was not something that she was going to be able to sort of find a way to navigate and live her life the way she always had. I think she knew at this moment, no, this is going to impact my life significantly when she couldn't draw the clock. Nobody had to tell her that. That was, I could just see it written on her face. Wow, this is something really significant for me. Scott and I aren't going to be able to do everything the way we used to do. I could just read that in her face. And those months between, you know, the first doctor's appointment at the primary care doctor to um uh to the to the final appointment where you received where she received her her um official diagnosis those must have been um tough months um like you know those her performance on those tests must have weighed heavily on on the both of you yes yes because again we hadn't thought dementia at the first appointment and and from then on we thought 
you know, goodness, this this could be something really significant. And and I could tell that the the lack of knowledge was weighing heavily on Maureen. And so, you know, I was working at my at my old job at the time, and I said to my employer, I said, look, I'm I'm gonna have to make some appointments. I don't know when they're gonna be. It may be short notice, but I want to make these appointments happen as quickly as possible so we can get to an answer as quickly as possible and then know what we're to do. And given that we live in Portland, Oregon, we're, we're blessed and that there are a lot of um, hospitals, clinics, et cetera, that we can go to. And so if a doctor is busy at this one, there may be another doctor available at a different one. So I was willing to drive wherever it, it required drive Maureen to take her to each of these appointments so that we weren't extending this out over a year or better, but, but we really condensed it to three months. I wanted to have these appointments. So I wanted her to have that information because I could tell it was just kind of eating her up inside. Mm, right. And, um, you know, especially for folks with early onset dementia and, and for rare ones like, uh, like FTD, right. Um, the, you know, the whole, diagnostic process can really be long drawn out, right? It could be years until they get an official an official and accurate diagnosis, right? Yeah, I've, I've spoken to people where the diagnosis has taken years or sometimes it was a different diagnosis and that diagnosis changes um, partway through the illness. And, and it's interesting about FTD is that, yeah, there are a lot of medical professionals out there that aren't as well-versed in FTD. But FTD isn't as rare as a lot of folks think in that FTD is the most common form of dementia for people under 60, with Alzheimer's being the most common for those above 60. And FTD is also one of the most misdiagnosed dementias. And so a lot of, like I, like I mentioned with the birthday, is depending on how deep you dive, if you ask somebody their birthday and they can't tell you their birthday, they say, oh, they must have a memory problem. Maybe it's Alzheimer's and they don't go further. And so to really dive deeply and really go through all the details to truly diagnose, I suspect there are many people out there with FTD that don't have that diagnosis. And I certainly ran into uh, a woman who read my book, who read We Danced. And I make the comment that FTD is very different than Alzheimer's in the book. And she took the time to wrote me to to, to write me a uh, uh, a few comments, and she said, you know, I I have to disagree with that aspect of your book, and that you say FTD is nothing like Alzheimer's. And she explained that her husband is diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and she told me all of his symptoms. And I didn't certainly want to argue with the woman, but I said, you know, I appreciate you sharing that with me. I said, if you'll recall in the book too, is I do say that FTD is one of the most misdiagnosed dementia. I said, a lot of the symptoms that you're describing to me don't feel like Alzheimer's. And I said, I'm certainly not a professional. I'm not an expert, but how confident are you in that diagnosis that she had received for her husband years prior? And she said, you know, I hadn't looked at it from that perspective. And I maintained connect, contact with her over the course of this last six months. Um, she had an MRI done and she said, you know, they're not confident it is Alzheimer's or just Alzheimer's. And she said, thank you for opening my eyes. Right. And um, I mean, that just 
reveals how complex dementia is, right? I think it's um yeah. it's important to stress that it's not just Alzheimer's disease out there and um and that dementia is not just an old person's illness, right? It can affect people of all ages, right? I mean, you know, at being patient, we um we had a we had a mother who was a who who is a caregiver for her daughter. Um and her daughter was diagnosed um with FTD um at the age of 29. Um yeah. and so dementia certainly can affect people of all ages. Um and, and Scott, you know, I want to um, can you take us to then um, the day of the official diagnosis um, when the neurologist diagnosed Maureen with FTD and um, how did you and Maureen feel when, you know, um, when you received that final um, diagnosis from the doctor? Yes, I remember. I remember that day real well. It was devastating. Um, at that point, we had not heard of FTD. The, 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 that term had not been mentioned to us. But that day of the appointment, the neurologist had said, okay, I have information. I'd like to meet with you two to go over it. And we weren't in that office more than a couple minutes. She sat us down and she said, well, I am very confident that Maureen, you have frontal temporal degeneration, FTD and specifically primary progressive aphasia. And we kind of, you know, we're not understanding all the vernacular. We're looking at her, we're looking at each other. Not yet the shock or not yet the devastation because again, not familiar with the term. And so, you know, I'm holding Maureen's hand the whole time during the entire appointment. And I'm asking questions. I said, so, you know, can you explain more what this dementia is? Is it, you know, is it like Alzheimer's? And she was explaining the differences and so forth. And, and I said, how certain are you? And she says, well, I'm very certain. I, I know a lot about FTDS. Okay. And I said, so is this something that we just sort of learned to live with? Is this, you know, is her condition as, as bad as it will get? And I remember the neurologist, she said, well, well, no, this is, this is going to get worse. And it will come to a point where she'll be completely dependent on care. And we just, I, I could feel Maureen was just still in that moment. And the neurologist said, Maureen has, I would estimate seven to 10 years to live. And that's just when I felt Maureen's hand drop away from my hand. And I thought about this young, vibrant woman. I mean, again, this diagnosis, she had just turned 66. She was otherwise healthy. She had decades to look forward to. Uh, her family normally had longevity. She had an aunt that lived to 102. And she was enjoying life. We traveled, we danced. She was living her best life. And I was just so sad at this revelation. I I held her a lot. I I I was with her when she wanted me to be. I gave her space when she wanted me to give her space, but never left her alone. Just, just, I didn't, I wanted to bring it up on her terms, but I just felt the entire thing was just so tremendously unfair to her because she had spelt, spent so much of her life building up her self-confidence. And now this suddenly caused her to doubt everything about herself. Mm, right. And, you know, you, you talk about, um, you know, we dance with FTD and you know, it's, um, 
it's sort of like a high stakes mu musical chair kind of kind of thing where um what do you mean by that when you say that it's um it's it's like a high stakes musical chair yeah i'm trying to remember that, <laughs> that i wrote that uh we danced maureen and i spent most of our uh relationship and our marriage dancing we she loved to dance I had two left feet. We, we took dance classes so that I could understand how to dance. And I took her out dancing quite a bit. That's just something she really loved to do. And we think of dancing in that very specific way. But there is another dancing that when trauma hits you, and it is this, it is this weave and bob, it is this pivot and adjust that needs to happen. And with FTD, at least with Maureen's, because it progressed so fast, is that we had to constantly adjust. We had to be very nimble. And a solution for an issue one week didn't necessarily work the next week or even the next day. And so it required that constant pivot and adjust, that constant dance of how can I help Maureen live her best life with everything that's in front of her, uh, meet her where she's at. And a lot of that, that game of musical chairs, it's meeting her where she's at. And it's helping, it's, it's more like me not playing the game of musical chairs, but she's playing the game of musical chairs. And life keeps pulling the chair out from her. And I keep trying to find a chair for her, but we're running out of chairs. And I, I find her and I guide her to that chair and I guide her to that chair as long as I can. And then, then FTD is taking those chairs away from her. And, and that pivot and adjust can be taxing for caregivers. It can be taxing for the afflicted, but that is absolutely necessary to do throughout the caregiving right up until, until the end is be nimble and adjust. Right, in terms of like adapting to um, the daily challenges uh, of dementia, right? Whether it's FTD or other forms of dementia, it's adapting right. to the day-to-day, -day, right? Um, and yeah, and you know, it's for you, it's obviously very taxing as a, as a caregiver because you're also working uh, at the same time, right? And, and, you know, as we talked about before this interview, you know, you couldn't afford to um, to retire, right? Because, you know, the care is, of course, very expensive. Uh, you mentioned that, like, the care for her was $7,000 a month um, um, for her FTD um, and for her illness. And, um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how you, you know, you balance your work and at the same time, you know, caring for Maureen then? Yeah, the first... Well, the first year uh, we were able to make reasonable accommodations. And again, we didn't know how long this was going to last. This doctor said seven to 10 years, which seemed like a horribly short time, but it wasn't seven to 10 years. It was three and a half years from diagnosis to her, to her passing, to her death. And she was progressing at a very rapid pace. And I thought we would have years to sort of work out 
some of the finer details or increased care, but, but that wasn't the case. I watched certain functionality of hers disappear on a weekly or monthly basis. And so initially for the first year, like I say, we didn't make a lot of adjustments. We still did the things we were going to do. We, we had planned a trip before the diagnosis down Route 66. And I asked her if she still wanted to do that. And we did. And we took a month together on the road and had a wonderful time, but we set our own pace. And so it kept it comfortable for her. I monitored her her comfort, her eating, her bathroom breaks, and just try to be very vigilant. And so she could still enjoy the travel. She enjoyed concerts, but they became very, she got tired quickly. And so we didn't do the evening concerts anymore. We went to more uh, matinee style concerts uh, so that she could still enjoy her music. We still went out dancing, but we didn't dance till late into the evening. We we stopped early in the evening so I could still, still bring her home uh, while she was still, uh, while she wasn't too tired. But when it became evident she needed more care after the first year, I realized I had to change jobs. I had a job that was very taxing. I was a principal in an international design firm and I would work 50, 60 hours and I'd have evening meetings, I'd travel, I'd, I'd do a variety of things. And I realized all that had to stop. You know, my Maureen required care and it wasn't just bring some in-home care in because she did have trust issues. It needed to be me. And, it, and I wanted it to be me, quite honestly. I mean, that's what you sign on for when you get married. And so an opportunity fell on my lap where I was able to leave the firm, uh, open my own business of one and contract with somebody that was still in the same field that I was doing, but I was able to contract with them and set terms. And just very fortuitous in a car ride with this gentleman and talking about it and and that opportunity presenting itself. And I said, look, I can't work more than 40 hours a week. And I want half of those from home. I don't want to do any more travel, no more night meetings. And I needed to be flexible enough that if I have appointments or need to do something with my wife, I just go do it. And, and he made that happen. And that really freed up my time so that I could really spend more time with her. And it, it wasn't perfect because I still, I was, I was working, but, but in some times I could put her down uh, for a nap or, or to sleep at night and I could get a little bit of work done that way. And it was just, it was just balancing it. And it was fine uh, for about another year and a half until then she got so much worse that uh, she had to be, uh, placed in a care facility. And I, I hated to do that because, um, you know, you, we want to live together, but I had four different professionals tell me, you know, work with Maureen and tell me she needs to be in a care facility. She should have been in a care facility. And that was absolutely devastating to me. That was a, another gut punch for me. And when I placed her in the care facility, I knew she would be safe 24 seven. I knew that there'd be somebody looking after her all the time, even when I had to be at work, but I still flexed my work hours to make sure that I still saw her three or four times a day. I still came to the care facility on my lunch breaks before I went to work, after I got off work, 
uh, when I got to the care facility, I took over the care of her wherever they were at. If they were about to start a meal, I would feed her or I would change her or I would shower her. Or I would do those things. And sometimes it was just simply taking her out, taking her on an outing, taking her to a Starbucks or to a park. And it was just helping her live the best life that she could at that moment, knowing that that shifts on a daily basis. Right. And, you know, on your point about helping her live her best life possible, right? And, you know, it was, I, I think it was, um, you guys actually made a five-year, um, uh, a five-year travel list, right? In terms of like all the places that you guys were going to go, right? But, um, but you know, at the, at that time, you didn't realize that she only had like about a year left, right? Of travels. Right. And, um, and, um, you know, to your point about um, your travels to like Route 66, it was like very much a sensory experience for, for Maureen, right? Instead of like going through the history of places, um, it was all about like engaging the senses of Maureen right? and, um, and enjoying those sceneries and senses, right? Yes, we didn't, we didn't read, <laughs> we didn't read much during Route 66. We didn't understand the history of this town or that town or this museum or that museum. It was very much about just experiences for her. We drove, we spent a month and we drove from Portland, Oregon to Chicago and then took Route 66 down to Santa Monica and then took the California coast back up to Portland. And like I say, it took a month to do it. And it was some days we drive 50 miles and other days 300. It just kind of depended on, on whatever we were in the mood for, whatever she was in the mood for. But she got to see first. She got to uh, go to Yellowstone for the first time, Mount Rushmore for the first time, uh, went to Sturgis and on our way to Chicago. And then, and then all along Route 66, just saw things that, that were fun for her. I mean, she was born in 1950. So she, you know, a lot of her uh, memories or best childhood memories were in her teen years in the 60s. And so seeing fun cars and seeing things that brought up fun memories for her was what we strove to do. And she went to the Grand Canyon for the first time at, you know, towards the end of Route 66. And just the big, going up Big Sur uh, along California and just seeing the beautiful coast. And, and that all that visual, some of the, um, you know, some of the audio as well. I mean, we played all our favorite songs, and you know, for a month on the, on the car as we went and uh, uh, didn't experiment a lot with food. I wanted to kind of keep her more in a routine, but, but just, yeah, it was just fun for her and she loved to travel. And, and even after route 66, we went to the Bahamas for a week. We went to, um, excuse me, not the Bahamas, we went to Barbados for a week. And then we went to Puerto Vallarta. And Puerto Vallarta was kind of late in the FTD. It was really our last big trip. She had a few behavioral crashes there. And, and that caused me to really adjust more so, not just making sure she didn't have things she had to plan or details she had to worry about. But it made me realize, no, we, we are going to be best at a three-day weekend now. I can just tell and based on the crashes. And our last sort of flight anywhere was we went to uh, uh, Disneyland when she was about two years into the FTD for just a three-day weekend because that had been a favorite place of hers. We'd gone there maybe eight or nine times prior. So, um, but kept it really slow. You know, it wasn't the fast rides. It was, 
it was a lot of resting and watching and people watching and listening to the street bands and doing open air rides like uh, the Columbia ship and things like that. Not a lot of the things that normally your grandkids would like to do. Mm, right. And, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, um, her moving into memory care was a, um, that was very painful for you to, to have to move her into memory care, but, you know, you know, during her stay at, at the facility, you still made uh, wonderful memories with Maureen, right? Spending time with her, they're, you know, happy memories, but also painful memories at the same time. Can you share with us some of like the, the happier, these wonderful memories that you share with her um, when she was in memory care then? Yes, you, you have to make the memories because it's easy to focus on all the negative. And you have to realize that making memories doesn't, isn't the same thing as grand gestures. Making a memory can be, she didn't eat for the prior two days, but now she's eating. Isn't that wonderful? She, you know, might hold my hand, want to hold my hand. Early on when she was in the care facility, she wanted to pace a lot. And I would come in and she'd see me and she said, I have something to show you. Come with me, come. And, and I'd come with her and she, there was nothing she had to show me. She just wanted to walk with me and we'd walk a lot. And, and it was just, it was wonderful to spend that time with her, to care for her. I mean, it was a whole different level of intimacy in our relationship to do that. And, and as time wore on in the care facility, uh, despite all sorts of strategies to, to try to get calories in her, she continued to lose weight. And she would walk a bit hunched, a bit slower. She'd hang her head a lot. And so she wouldn't look up at you always. And so I would come into the room and I'd see her slowly shuffling across the large day room. And I got into a habit with her when she started hanging her head where I would come in and I would always say, ta-da, because I'm sure nobody else would say ta-da. <laughs> and so she would, and I would see her smile and I would see her eyes light up. And then she'd kind of look out the top of her eyes at me because she was, her head was too long. And she'd say, it's, it's him. And she'd smile. And then I'd come over and I'd give her a hug and I'd just rub her back and I'd hold her hand. And, you know, simple moments like that are, are the things that you, you know, the things that you treasure. And I would try and sway dance with her a little bit because I'd have her playlist on my phone in my pocket. And rather than pulling the phone out, I just kind of hit the, the button. It was all sort of queued up. And she'd hear her favorite music and start humming to it. And then we'd sway dance a little bit. And she enjoyed that. They had a chapel inside the care facility. And, and a couple of times um, when it was empty, I'd take her into this little chapel and I'd turn on Elvis and we just, uh, you know, we just uh, dance and she, and she just have that smile on her. And, but not all days are, are, are positive. There's some real hard days too, where she just has no energy, didn't want to do anything. And, and you still have to try and find and make moments, simple moments, just holding her hand, waiting for a smile. Maybe she's eating something and 
I bring her her chai tea and she liked that, whatever it might be, it can be really simple. I remember one day that was very, very bad for her. It was about six weeks before she passed, having just a really draining day. And I helped her get into her pajamas and put her into bed that evening. And I sat with her for a while until I thought she was asleep. And then I got up to go and she woke up. And so I sat back down and, and I, uh, I just told her that I loved her and that I would always love her. And she looked at me very intently. And this was at a time where she could hardly string together four or five words in a day. And she held my arm and she said, we are us. And it was so profound for me. And I said, we are baby, you and me forever. And, and that we are us has just been something that's just kept with me ever since she said that, because she was able to just show me so much, just three words, show me how much I meant to her show me how much she valued what we were to each other. And that one of your earlier questions about their, their, it reveals their true character, reveals the strength of their character is she was trying to show me in that moment that she's still there. She's, she's still hanging on. And, and that was just, you know, that's some, that moment has stayed with me uh, for now uh, almost two and a half years. Right. Like, really savoring, like you said, right? Savoring those small moments, right? Like those kind of like silver linings and in, in those dark times that can happen, right? And, and yeah. really remembering, cherishing those memories, right? So, yeah. yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I don't wear, I mean, for a whole nother reason, I don't wear our, our wedding ring anymore because of, I had to take her rings off because she was losing weight. And it was a, a variety, a, a long story associated with that. But I, I wear a ring of remembrance now. And uh, I don't know if it shows up on my camera or not, but it says we are us on the ring there. And, and that's just something that I wear. Mm, right. And Scott, I think this is a good time because uh, to, to read this quote from a book that um, that stayed with me and I wanted to share it with the audience um, and get your thoughts on it. And, you know, you, you wrote that um, I would sum up the best experience of my entire life as the collection of all the time that I spent with Maureen, the second best, the time that I now spend grieving. I have the privilege of both. I do not know where I will travel, but I know she left me a far better person for having walked part of this journey with her. In my grief, I have to figure out what to do with all that she has left behind for me. Um, and yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, you know, how do you think you've become, um, you know, a better person, you know, through this experience um, with Maureen? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if I've become a better person. I'd leave, I believe other people to decide that for me. But um, but certainly I am a person that reacts far less. Uh, I I respond more than react. I am much more thoughtful about the smallest of things. Everything is important to me that is really important. And the things that I used to think were important are really very trivial. And I, I value, Maureen taught me so much. Maureen 
I, I didn't realize all that she was prepping me for, nor I'm sure did she, all that she was prepping me for in all of our time together, in that the first time she and I went to the coast, and it's the Oregon coast, so it can be a little chilly. We had jackets on, we were going to the coast, and it was close to sunset. And me, I'm always talking a mile a minute, and I always have all these ideas and things that I, I want to do. And she said, well, let's just sit here on the beach and watch the sunset. And she got me to slow down. And despite having seen hundreds of sunsets, I really appreciated the sunset for what it was in that, in that moment back in the 90s. And she wanted me to listen to the tide and just listen to it go in and out and, and not just hear the tide as part of the background, but have it be the thing I was listening to. And then catapult that to 20 some years later and I'm now without Maureen. I still value the sounds, those simple sounds, those simple moments. I now, appreciate them at a whole different level because it's the little things all around you that you take for granted that I now see because of her and because of the time that we had together. And I'm able to, I'm able to cherish those now in her absence, in, in, in her passing. And I like being the, I, I, this kind of the self-proclaimed steward of her memory because it just, it keeps me close to what's, what's really valuable in life, which is those little things. It's not success. It's not being a principal in an international design firm. It's being somebody that's responsive to the needs of an individual. Right. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, right, you, 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 you know, you quit your job as a principal um, to take on um, less job, uh, less responsibilities by starting your own company, right? And in many ways, um, um, you were back at the point um, in your career when you first met Maureen, right? But obviously it was all worth it, right? Because um, you wanted to be there to, to care for Maureen, right? It, it gave you the opportunity to care um, for the love of your life, right? Yeah, um, it yeah. Yeah, my career certainly took a full, uh, went a full circle from being a, a, a school district project manager. And when I left to go to Portland for 20 some years, I worked for an architectural and engineering design firm. Still in many ways, I mean, I still worked on school projects, but kind of in a different capacity. And when I left and went back to that trade of being a school district project manager, it was, it was very much uh, completing a circle that I met Maureen very early in, in creating that career path for myself. And Maureen passed with me coming back to that circle. So it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you, know, you could wax philosophical on a lot of that, but, but yeah, it's, it was nice to, have that, I guess, that level of completeness. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, as we've talked about, you know, during this interview, like throughout her illness, you know, the two of you, you know, did things to, you know, preserve the intimacy between uh, and, and the relationship, right? Um, in terms, like, 
just going for a dance and things like that, right? And, you know, on that note, I want to ask you, like, for, you know, for couples who are going through um, where, where, you know, one partner is going through, is um, living with dementia, what, what do you think are some ways that they can still, you know, maintain that intimacy in their relationship, right? Well, life is life is full of interruptions, whether you're two healthy people or someone healthy and somebody requiring care. And a lot of these interruptions are necessary preparations for daily and long-term care. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest not doing these preparations. And when I say preparations, I mean all the things that you need to do knowing what is coming getting power of attorney in place and dealing with your financials and putting together a support network and all the connections for medical and hospice care and, and shifting your own duties so you can free up your time. And all those things are important. And I would encourage partners to deal with those as early and quickly as possible. Kind of take all the, the details and put them over here and get them done and enjoy your time together. And that is so hard to do because, as I mentioned, Maureen had primary progressive aphasia and the semantic variant, and it was very much language-based, not to say that there weren't behavioral crashes. Behavioral crashes were, were for about a year of, of her disease. And I know people with that have had loved ones with the behavioral crashes, it's really hard to find those moments. It's, the behavioral crashes can be constant and, and like just a flood coming over you. And it's hard to find those moments. I, I believe me, I know. But you have to find a way to look past the grand gesture, look past what you did before. There's, there's a phrase called the tragedy narrative. And the tragedy narrative is my loved one can no longer do the things the way they used to do them. And you need to put that aside and put that away. And you need to decide to meet them where they're at and do what they can do now. And understand that may change next week. You need to meet them where they're at and do what they can do now. Help them live their best life for the moment. And don't worry about the grand gesture. She loved a trip to Starbucks. And I would take her from the care facility. I bring her, place her in the car and put her seatbelt on and we just go to the Starbucks. It's only going to be a short trip, but it gives her that joy for that moment. And she had developed one of the things with FTD is you have this heightened sense of taste. And she'd see a box of Altoids in the car. And I'd set her in the car and she'd see that familiar red box and she'd go for it. And she'd, and she'd put one in her mouth. And the smile on her face that's the memory you have to make is that brief smile is cherish that. I, I, I tell a lot of folks in FTD, I say, celebrate the magnificence of the ordinary. And I say that a lot in the book as well, is celebrate the magnificence of the ordinary. It does not have to be a grand gesture to create those moments that you'll remember. Mm -hmm. Right. It's those little moments, right? Like going to Starbucks or um, seeing her you know, the, the Altoids that puts a smile in her face, right? It's those small moments that you can really preserve the intimacy in, in a relationship. Yeah, going to the park and having her just smell a flower 
sometimes we didn't even go. We just went to the facility's courtyard and, and they had flowers there. Sometimes it's just a walk. Sometimes it's just a hand-holding. And that's, that's the moment to cherish. It's when she's absolutely exhausted, has not said more than two words all day, and still has the wherewithal at the end of the evening to say, we are us. And those are the moments. And, and I encourage couples that, that are going through this, journal what you experience. Please journal what you experience. Those journal entries have proven to be a lifeline for me since Maureen passed. If, if I'm having a down day, if I'm having a depressed day, I can read some of those journal entries, my own journal entries and go, I remember that moment. I remember that. That was, that was pretty special. And I might have a harder time remembering those without the journals. So I would strongly encourage that. Got it. Well, is there anything you'd like to add, Scott, to our audience? I... I, I've taught, I've spoken a lot about the ways that Maureen and I kept our love and our relationship strong as best we could. And, and I don't want the audience to feel like I'm dismissing more severe dementia, that, that I don't recognize that there is a strong behavioral uh, uh, conditions that make it really hard to find that that wonderful moment in a day or even in a week and and i i facilitate a caregiving support group and and i have people that come and talk to me about about what they're struggling with and and sometimes i have somebody say look scott there just isn't anything good and the more we speak then that person will say well you know he was he was actually a bit nicer this week than normal I said, well, that's good. I said, cherish that. I said, write that down. Say, you know, he was nicer this week than normal. And, you know, enjoy that moment while it lasts. And um, it's not, it's not easy. It is exhausting. There were times where I would sit in my car and scream and cry, and that's okay. And I took a breath and said, I'm going to make her next moment even better. And you need to take that breath for yourself. They always say the caregiver needs to take care of themselves. And I agree with that. But speaking for many, many caregivers, we also know that that's really hard to take that time for yourself to take care of yourself. And so sometimes taking care of yourself is just simply giving yourself a three count and a breath and starting over. And uh, so, yeah, what I would leave with the audience is I understand it's hard. Believe me, I do. And uh, uh, but it's also completely worth it. And you will be so happy that you did that uh, when your loved one's gone. Right. And, and that's why, as you mentioned, right, it's so important to um, uh, write a journal, right? That way you can remember those small moments that are um, worth savoring, right? Because it's so easy to forget those little moments, right? It just passes by. Right? And it doesn't have to be daily and it doesn't have to be lengthy it can just be jotting down a few notes a couple times a week just just little things because i wouldn't want to add to a caregiver's tasks one more task but at the same point that is something that will repay you a hundredfold later is is taking the time for that mm -hmm. right. okay well thank you so much scott for um for sharing your story and um really appreciate your insights 
Um, and for our audience, if you've uh, missed any of our live talk, um, you can uh, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T.com. And send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.